Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's gone airborne. It's gone airborne. Sounds familiar, right? Those few words instill so much fear. Probably because Dustin Hoffman says them dramatically to a very stoic Morgan Freeman in the 1995 film, Outbreak. In the movie, as today, a deadly virus starts infecting the entire population, and a handful of scientists struggle to find a cure. But what does it mean when a virus goes airborne? This week, we're going to look at how viruses spread in the air. We'll learn about the risks to your health when being indoors and discover the experimental tools used to figure out those risks. We'll also reveal why the best way to prevent spread may be as simple as getting some good old-fashioned fresh air. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and we're going to get into the flow of airborne transmission. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Respiratory viruses are scary. Before you know it, an outbreak can turn into an epidemic. And as we've seen evolve into a pandemic. Over the last century, we've seen a few of these respiratory virus pandemics. Almost all of them have come from one virus, influenza. We might not have taken them as seriously of late, but thanks to the COVID-19 coronavirus, also known as SARS-CoV-2, we are once again paying attention. As this virus has proven, if it happens to live in your respiratory tract, there's always a concern that a single infection can become a worldwide problem. And this happens even as we all know coronaviruses, influenza viruses, and others can easily be killed by soap and water. Simple hand washing can be more than enough to prevent spread, and keeping surfaces clean also reduces the risk. But when we shed viruses into the environment, controlling their spread is almost impossible. After all, when we cough or sneeze or even talk, Air isn't the only thing that escapes. The viruses go along as well. The greatest risk comes within a few meters or six feet of an individual. But some have suggested we may need five times that distance in some cases. I've received numerous questions about airborne spread, and I'm going to talk about it here. And joining me on this discussion is Stephen Rogat, who is a mechanical engineering professor at the University of British Columbia. His focus of research is the morphology, transport properties, and dynamics of aerosol nanoparticles, which include viruses. Tell us about your work and how it relates to the spread of infectious diseases. Okay, well, thanks, uh, thanks very much, Jason, for having me on your podcast. I, I must admit it's, it's uh, high time that aerosol science has been given some attention in the media. It's been something I've been working on for 30 years, and it's quite an old field. Uh, I've been working on combustion emissions for most of my career. That's uh, the, particularly the soot emissions from combustion and flames. And those are very bad actors in terms of uh, climate. They're a climate warming agent. Uh, they're also a, a very large part of the 
unhealthy air pollution that we've heard a little bit about in the media in the last few years. And, uh, and this is probably a good time to remind people that something like 4 million to 8 million people die from air pollution every year. Uh, aerosols have had a big impact on people's health uh, every year for, for decades and decades. When we start talking about airborne transmission of infectious agents, we keep hearing about droplets and, of course, aerosols. I want to start off in this discussion with the terminology. What are droplets and aerosols and what makes them different from each other, not only in their physics, but also in how uh, they travel through the air? Uh, that's a great question, and it's it's easy to understand why people can be a little bit confused because I think we in aerosol science don't always use these words consistently. An aerosol is any particle suspended in a gas that could include any sizes. So in in theory, if you're following the dictionary definition of aerosol, that would include a skydiver falling from a plane. All, all, <laughs> all you have to do to become an aerosol is is uh, jump off of uh, some height, and for the period of time that you're in the air, you're an aerosol particle. A droplet is is a liquid particle. And so a raindrop is both an aerosol and a droplet. As I, as I say, we don't really uh, concern ourselves with falling animals very much in, in aerosol science. But droplets, we normally think of as being from millimeter size down to 100 microns, maybe 10 microns. We'd consider those to be droplets if they're liquid. But they that blends into what we consider aerosols. Aerosols, we normally consider to be less than, say, 10 or 20 microns. And there are a lot of us that focus our attention on uh, PM10 or particles less than 10 micron or PM1 particles less than one micron. Most of my work is actually on things that are about a tenth of a micron in size. Uh, soot particles are in that size. And that also happens to be the size of the COVID virus itself although we don't normally expect those viruses to be isolated in the air. When we talk about the different sizes, because we're on Earth, we have gravity. So I would assume then that when we talk about droplets and aerosols that are liquid and not skydivers, a droplet will fall faster than uh, an aerosol. Is that correct? Yeah, and that's due not because a droplet is liquid and an aerosol isn't always liquid. It's, it's a size effect. If somebody is uh, coughing or sneezing out droplets that are on the millimeter time scale or size scale, they will fall out uh, of the air in a few meters. Uh, in a few seconds, they'll, they'll land on the earth. They're also going to be exhaling smaller particles on the order of uh, 10 microns or one micron. And those particles... Uh, would take many minutes to many hours to settle out of the air. And in that time, the air currents, whatever is happening in the environment, will will uh, take them wherever the air is going. So size really matters in considering what happens to both aerosols and droplets. And, and it totally affects um, how we would protect against these particles of different sizes. So when we expel a droplet or an aerosol. Uh, We do it in one of a few ways. Uh, We can cough, we can sneeze, uh, we can shout, uh, we can even breathe, whether it be, you know, hard breathing or just regular breathing like we see when we're sitting on the couch. Is there a difference in the way that the droplets and aerosols come out of us? That's a great question. I mean, this process is generally called atomization. 
where we're taking uh, liquid and breaking it up into tiny pieces into droplets. And it typically comes about when we're, we're talking about human expired, expelled droplets uh, from air moving over a liquid. So the inside of your respiratory tract is lined with a liquid. Uh, and it's got, it's not just water, of course, it's got salts, it's got proteins. It may even have a few viruses floating around in that liquid. And the air moves across the liquid and it kind of, imagine water waves and sea spray. It's a little bit like that. The air picks up uh, bits of liquid, depending on where the air is moving in the part of, in different parts of your respiratory system, you can get uh, different types of droplets forming. So if you're coughing or sneezing, you would have uh, high velocity air going right through your mouth and it can pick up liquids from your mouth and, and turn those into some pretty large droplets that are coming out at very high velocity. And those things are going to move kind of like bullets. And that's, that's when you want to wear your face shield or have the plexiglass in front of the cashier at the grocery store, right? Whether you're infected or not. <laughs> yeah, whether you're infected or not, yes. And then and there were things uh, that you, you wanted to avoid even before COVID. So, uh, so true. Absolutely. Then, then um, if you are just breathing in a calm way, you have air moving in and out of the, the deepest pockets of your lungs. And you can imagine that um, the fluid in your respiratory tract is a, is a little bit like soapy water in the sense that it can form bubbles. And so you, you form a bubble and it bursts. And, and you may have seen this with a soap bubble bursting that when it bursts, it'll leave this little shower of particles. And the same kind of thing can happen in your lungs. And that will give uh, smaller particles. And, and uh, I guess you have to remember, think about what happens after the liquid droplets leave your, your, your body. Uh, the big ones are going to stay as liquid and they're going to probably hit that plexiglass shield or fall out of the ground before they get a chance to dry out. But the smallest ones will probably dry out in, in a matter of seconds and they'll become even smaller. And so dried out you end up with uh, these solid aerosol particles, mostly solid, that might be between one and 10 microns in diameter. And those are mostly uh, whatever was in the, the respiratory fluids uh, and occasionally including some viruses and bacteria that might've been uh, in your lining as well. And the concern is of course, that then those are gonna float around in the air, uh, spread over periods of minutes or hours, and then somebody else will inhale those those things, uh, those fine droplets. So, in that context, then we talk about you know hot, warm, and cold zones when it comes to the risk of exposure, whether it be an environmental toxin or any kind of toxin, uh, including combustibles. But when it comes to airborne spread of infectious diseases, we tend to hear about these dispersion fields. Um, is there some kind of relationship there? And and if so. Is that how we develop uh, how far a person should be from another person? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, well, you know, they used to say the solution to pollution is dilution, right? And, you know, it's, it's a natural fact that uh, if you measure the concentration of airborne particles next to somebody, close in, on average, it's going to be much higher close to the source. And you can see that with a smokestack, okay? It's a, farther the way... The farther you are from the source, the lower the concentrations. And 
if if you're outside, the chances are very good that if you're several meters away from somebody, prevailing winds, even if they're light winds, are going to carry those aerosols away from you, away from the source. And you're not likely to breathe anything in unless you're really close. So you can imagine this hot zone, which is quite close in to the person that's exhaling these aerosols. Uh, you don't want to spend a lot of time in there. Um, the farther away you get, the less likely you are to actually breathe an aerosol particle that originated with that infected person. You know, it's, it's about probability. You know, the, these viruses could end up anywhere, but the further away you are, the less likely you are to, um, to inhale something. And, and it may be that there is a, a minimum dose where, you know, maybe one virus is just really not harmful. And you get far enough away and it's just not a risk. Uh, so, yeah, there's this concentration field that we can imagine, which is associated with risk. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the case of respiratory viruses, the flow of air outside can lead to some rather dramatic distances of spread. But this also can happen indoors. As we saw with SARS back in 2003, a virus can travel across rooms and even between wards easily, thanks to the ventilation ducts. Understanding airflow indoors may have once been all about comfort, but now more than ever, it's also important to help keep you safe against an unknown and unexpected enemy. The good news is that the testing of today can be done quickly and provide results that anyone can appreciate. Stephen Rogak has seen the progression and advancement of airborne science and knows how this research can contribute to a better understanding of risk and, more importantly for you, how to stay safe. How does someone go about studying airflow, say, in a room or in a hospital or a hotel or even an apartment building? That's a good question, Jason, and it depends on what you're trying to learn from studying the airflow. A lot of the time, engineers will be interested in providing enough fresh air that the occupants are comfortable. They have a, you know, basically enough oxygen and the temperature is comfortable, uh, not too humid. You know, the airflow patterns affect those things. Uh, I think in the context here, we're thinking about uh, air, indoor air quality and whether the air you're breathing is, is healthy in one part of a room or another. And so there are a few ways to study that. Uh, one is you can actually set up instruments that will measure concentrations of whatever it is you care about at different locations in the room. Uh, so carbon dioxide, uh, fine particle concentrations, you put those in different parts of the room, maybe in the areas where somebody might be inhaling things, and then you can uh, look at the concentrations where people might be. Or you can study it uh, theoretically with uh, computational fluid dynamics, and you look at uh, what we know about the incoming air, and we simulate that. Okay. Now, I've heard of computational fluid dynamics before, and I find it absolutely fascinating. So could you just give us a little bit of a, of a rundown as to what this happens to be and why it's so useful? 
So computational fluid dynamics is something that that has become much more important the last few decades, thanks to computer power being uh, much, much better. Uh, it, it doesn't use any new physics. It uses typically uses the Navier-Stokes equations. Um, the Navier-Stokes equations were developed 100 plus years ago, and lots of people knew how to solve those equations for very, very simple problems 100 years ago. The problem is that we have complicated geometry and complicated inlet conditions. You just can't solve those mathematically directly. What you can do is solve a simple problem for tiny, tiny uh, cells or computational volumes. And so the, in CFD, what you do is you break up that space that you're concerned about, your room, for example, into millions and millions of tiny cells where the equations are simple for all of them. Uh, you can't possibly solve those by hand, but the computer is good at, at solving those things. So we can get an idea of what happens to complicated flows inside uh, rooms, for example, that may have a complicated geometry. In a sense, then, this can give you an idea as to how air flows, say, in a cubicle room versus a closet versus, say, the Guggenheim Museum. Yeah, it can do a pretty good job of that. I guess one thing you have to remember is that even with computational fluid dynamics, or sometimes some some of my colleagues call it colorful fluid dynamics, because you always get these nice animated pictures look incredibly realistic. Sometimes it is just colorful fluid dynamics. <laughs> well, I mean, it's true though, because you get to see in real time what it looks like, and sometimes it's absolutely fascinating. But I mean, I'm in infection prevention control, and for me, it's absolutely terrifying because I still remember seeing this one uh, image of uh, an inlet which was right above the patient, and so when the air came in, you saw all these wonderful, colorful rainbows of of, of lines coming out of that inlet and straight into the patient's lungs. And all I could think about was, oh my goodness, if there's a virus or some other infectious agent there, that would be very, very bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so uh, hospital operating rooms are actually designed that way intentionally. Wait, what? They're, they're designed that way intentionally, not to transport viruses into the patient's lungs, but in fact, to have the air supply above the patient. And you want that because you can filter, you can put extremely good filters in the air supply and you can actually be sure that the air supply is the cleanest air in the entire room. Now, what you might not want is then the air that flow over the patient into the, uh, the person next to them. Uh, not great if they've got an infectious disease. So there, there you want the outflow to be maybe down at the bottom of the room so you can have kind of a one-way flow past everybody. That's, that would be a goal. And so when you start seeing this, uh, now that you've brought it up, this whole idea of interaction between people amidst the uh, flow of air from just the, the ventilation itself, it sounds like it can get pretty complicated. Yeah. And I guess you know, one of the weaknesses of CFD, there, there are a lot of things in the real world that you may or may not choose to model in your particular CFD simulation. For example, people may be moving around in, in the real room. That's actually fairly difficult to model. And most of the times when somebody models the flow in a room, they're not going to consider the fact that people are walking back and forth and stirring up the air themselves. For a hospital room with a very, very high airflow and doctors who are not moving that much, maybe that's not so important. 
But if you're talking about a typical room with not very large air velocities in the supply, uh, then the fact that you might have crowds milling around, stirring up the air, they'll just get, they're just going to mix everything up. So that that kind of process uh, is going to generally produce a lot more mixing of the air in the room than you might get from the CFD. And what about the idea of exchanges? When when you said that, I was thinking an emergency room where everyone is sort of moving around and you really have a, a wide diversity of people. But then I was thinking, well, what about a shopping mall and, and in a retail store where you may not have uh, a huge number of air exchanges to be able to, as you said, dilute, but instead you're just polluting? I was actually in the lineup for a grocery store the other day. And instead of, instead of having people line up uh, outside of the place, they had people line up in the indoor hallway from the parkade to the to the, the grocery store. And this these spaces are actually not designed for large crowds. They don't have high air exchanges, and they're the worst place to um, have people uh, queue up, actually. Do they even have air exchanges in places like that? Other than just, of course, the doors? Uh, depending, uh, it's, it's often the case that uh, there are these spaces that um, are not meant for typical occupation like uh, stairwells and the and air exchange rates may be quite low in such places so putting people in in such places is not a good idea when we start hearing about social distancing as opposed to physical distancing which we talked about earlier the idea of social distancing really is one of the environmental factors of how airborne spread can happen it's not just simply the fact that you're you're crowding a whole bunch of people in there it's the fact that over time you literally are polluting the air and if any of those people or even one of those people happens to have a virus it could literally turn into a petri dish it's a very hard question to answer because a lot of the things that we're doing to prevent transmission, in other words, staying farther apart, avoiding contacts, they're going to be good for all of the other transmission mechanisms like uh, droplet transmission uh, or physical contact. Um, they're going to reduce transmission by those mechanisms and they're going to reduce transmission by aerosols. So it's kind of hard to tease out how important this is. So really... What we hear from, say, the World Health Organization all the way down to our medical officers of health, the droplet transmission, the close contact, and the uh, um, contamination of surfaces probably is going to play a much stronger role in the spread of this virus and, of course, any other respiratory virus than, say, an aerosol spread. It's true that these social distancing measures seem to be working, uh, so that's great. It's also hard to tell... Um, how important the aerosol side is. And, and that gets important when you start to consider other ways of protecting people other than just closing everything down. But to what extent can we start getting people back into these spaces? Uh, how close can we cut these distances down? Uh, that's going to depend a lot on really understanding whether the aerosol transmission is important or not. And I guess that brings me to something that uh, I've seen uh, in the literature more recently, and this does have to do with COVID. Um, and it has to do with something called a turbulent gas cloud. 
Now, I've seen this term before, but usually it's astronomical in the sense that it talks about black holes and galaxy formations. I've never really heard it used in the context of aerosol spread of infection. Um, can you sort of elaborate what these you know, TGCs happen to be and whether or not we really need to be concerned about them? Or is this just one more academic addition to our knowledge base that may or may not have any implications for the listener? I've been interested in turbulent gas clouds for a long time. And it's a phenomenon that's really important in things like uh, combustion of fuels uh, and all kinds of sprays. Generally, when we're uh, forming aerosols and atomizing them by ejecting air and then droplets in that air. Generally, we're moving the air as well as the droplets. And so the, the air that's carrying those droplets has momentum, and that's going to transport particles uh, further. I, I think I mentioned earlier that the smallest particles that we think of as the aerosols are basically carried along with the air. And so the, in the initial cough or sneeze, it's that air coming out of your mouth that's transporting them. Later on, you know, a few minutes later, the velocity that comes from that is gone and they're carried by whatever air currents there are in the room. But the turbulent gas cloud is, is kind of part and parcel of the, the ejection process, the cough or the sneeze, and, and masks uh, are going to help with that. If somebody's wearing one of those, they're going to cut down those puffs that carry the particles further away. So those are all good things. We've reached the end of this episode, but not our exploration into airborne spread. This season, we're going to take a different approach to the SAS class. We're giving you the chance to ask the experts the questions you want answered. And we've given you more ways to get a hold of us. As always, you can tweet me at JATetro, or you can email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. And now you can head over to speakpipe.com slash SAS, S-A-S-S, and post your question. We'll take the top three to five questions and give you the answers next week. In the meantime, for Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Stephen Rogak. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Deal of Velasquez is our story producer, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week, stay safe, and as always, make sure to show him some sass. 